0: welcome to the antioch podcast we're a justice-minded christian church in beautiful bend oregon seeking and celebrating the reconciliation of all things may the word of christ dwell in you fully and give you peace The scripture readings today are from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, and the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. And Jesus came to them and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting uh, to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, to be reconciled to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Thanks, Kate.
0: Well, good morning, Antioch. My
1: name is Rick, and I have the honor of serving you as one of the elders here. Uh, I feel pretty good about the sermon this morning because, if you'll remember, two weeks ago, Pete told us that we should all expect to hear from God no matter how crummy the sermon is. And so the pressure's off of me and squarely back on all of you, the listeners. Today's sermon will be the final one of our Fall Vision Series centered around the work of the people. Over the past eight weeks, we have looked closely at each element of our Sunday morning worship service. The call to worship, the greeting time, the songs, the confessional prayer, the prayers of intercession, the role of giving and serving, the scripture reading, the sermon, and last week communion. We have learned how each of these pieces fits into our formation toward Christ's likeness uh, both individually and as a collective group. And we have seen that we have a job to do each Sunday morning, that liturgy, which is what all these elements uh, constitute, is the work of the people, and that we are not spectators or audience here on Sunday morning, but participants and laborers in that work. So the element of our Sunday service that is left to discuss today is our sending prayer, or our call to mission. Before we leave this place each Sunday, we say this prayer together to remind ourselves and one another of the reason for our weekly gathering, listening, and communing, the other main movements of our morning liturgy and our formation. Uh, Aaron Damiani is an Anglican pastor in Chicago who wrote a book about the same topic as this, our fall series, how the liturgy of our worship service reflects our understanding of the role and purpose of the church. He writes, one of the pitfalls of embracing the historic ancient forms of church is that the roots of worship go deep, but the fruit of mission never seems to appear. We can become so enamored with liturgy, sacraments, theology, art, creeds, and even prayer, that we have no energy left for the very thing it equips us for, being faithful witnesses of Jesus Christ. So that's what we'll talk about today. We've heard throughout this series the idea that repetition facilitates formation. We have not varied the wording of this sending prayer since we first began praying it. And many, if not most of us, uh, know this by heart. If you you can say this prayer without reading it, it's not because the pastor's assigned it as homework or because you voluntarily wrote it on an index card and looked at it every evening while you brushed your teeth. It's simply because we have faithfully prayed this prayer together at the end of each of our Sunday gatherings, and it has become something that we know, right? Now we have an expression that we use in place of the phrase by memory. We often say that we know something by heart. And I want to suggest right now that there ought to be a difference between some things we know by memory and others that have more meaning, more gravitas, and more implications for the way that we live our lives. So I want to do a little audience participation around the 1971 hit song by Don McLean, American Pie. <laughs> so I'll say some of the lyrics and I'll pause and allow you to fill in the blanks, okay? Can you do that? So, bye-bye, Miss American Pie, drove my... Shave. To the... But the levee was... Them good old boys were drinking... Okay, so you know, you know this. Uh, by By heart, as it were <clears throat> and because it mentions a lot of big, important things like God and love and salvation and rock and roll, people have tried to uh, find some hidden meaning in this sign or in this song or turn it into an allegory of some sort. But the reality is that the songwriter just threw a bunch of words together he didn 't intend any hidden meaning, and uh Knowing these words by heart has no value toward living your daily life. By contrast, our call to mission is deliberately and intentionally crafted to pack in as much practicality meaning as can be contained in so few words. I assume it's still the case, but when I was in grade school, they expected us to memorize the multiplication table so that we would know without having to think about it that, for example, 8 times 7 equals 56. Now this is practical, and depending on your your work, it might even come invaluable on a day-to-day basis to, to know your multiplication table. But it's still not the sort of thing that ought to make you leap from your bed each morning, hoping to apply it at every opportunity possible. By contrast, our call to mission has been, our call to mission is meant to inspire and motivate us every day of our lives. Our hope is that you would indeed know these words by heart and that they would remind you on a daily basis what it is to which Christ has called us. So without further introduction, let's look at our call to mission. May we go from here as those sent by God to love our neighbors as ourselves, to seek the peace and prosperity of our city, to bear witness to the coming kingdom of God and to joyfully serve all of creation in the love of the Father, the name of the Son, and the power of the Holy Spirit. Now I'm going to break this down line by line and pull in some relevant scripture passages, show you where we got some of these phrases, but understand up front that I'm not going to be exhaustive on any of this. Most of us have heard several individual sermons on each line of this in other contexts, so I'm going to be buzzing around pretty quickly, dropping one topic and going on to the next, and you'll just have to give me grace for the disjointed nature of of our sermon this morning. On the other hand, if you're one of those who simply can't concentrate on any one thing for very long, uh, maybe this sermon will be right up your alley. So our call to mission begins, may we go from here as those sent by God. For now, I want to simply acknowledge that Christ's church has a mission in the world, that the church does not exist only for its own sake or for its own benefit. Jesus said that we are to be salt in a world that needs both its uh, enhancing effects and its preservative effects that 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 metaphor entails. He said that we are to be light in an otherwise dark world. And it was Jesus himself who most clearly gave to his followers a call to mission, and it's something he did several times. So over the summer, as we followed the lectionary readings from the Gospel of Luke, we saw that Jesus sent out the 12 disciples and that later he sent out the larger group of 72 disciples, in each case charging them to both verbally proclaim the good news of God's forgiveness and in the inauguration of Christ's kingdom and to visually demonstrate God's compassion, forgiveness, and inbreaking kingdom by healing, absolving sinners, driving out evil, restoring and bringing to life people and communities. But Jesus' most famous call to mission came after he had risen from the dead when he delivered what has come to be called the Great Commission. We find it in Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. For our purposes right now, the main point from this is that Jesus sent his followers out into the world. He didn't tell them to remain in Jerusalem forever, but only until they were empowered by the Holy Spirit, at which point they were to spread out and share the good news by word and deed. What Jesus came to do was not meant to be shared it was meant to be shared by all nations, not just the people of Israel, and certainly not just the people of America. Now, it wasn't all that long ago that America was understood to be a Christian nation. Its founding fathers were nearly all devout Christians themselves. The Bible was foundational to our country's laws and philosophy, and much of the populace, populace went to church on a Sunday, a Christian place of worship of some denomination or another. During those times, it was easy to see the mission field as being abroad in lands where people had not been exposed to Christianity, the Bible, or the good news of salvation in Christ. But today, in our post-Christian nation, the mission field is just beyond our front doors, and we can encounter people who don't know of God's love for them without ever leaving town. But I want to make one other point that I think is often overlooked, especially by those evangelicals today who are all about proclaiming the Father's forgiveness in Christ, but who place no importance on addressing physical needs, such as feeding the poor, being hospitable to immigrants, and fighting injustice. I'd like to pick up on that phrase from the great commandment, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And what I'd like to point out is that prior to this commissioning, the very last extended teaching that Jesus gave which certainly must be covered by that phrase, all that I have commanded you, is that those who will join him in his kingdom, according to Matthew 25, 31, 46, will be those who have fed the poor, welcomed the stranger, clothed the naked, and visited the sick and the imprisoned. So our task likewise includes both proclamation and demonstration. I think most of you are aware of Antioch's understanding of our role in the world as we seek to partner with Christ in the reconciliation of all things. But not all Christians throughout church history have taken this same approach. We can think, for example, of the monastic tradition in which men and women have largely withdrawn from the world to pursue a Christian life that was more ascetic, more contemplative, or more single-minded. In modern times, we might think of groups like the Amish, who seem to emphasize maintaining separation from the world and to de-emphasize engagement with the world around them. But we really need to o- only need to look at our own tribe of evangelicals to see the same thing playing out within the past century. As American culture began to move away from its Christian heritage, as naturalism came to replace Christian theism in science, and eventually in the academy and schools, and even to influence the theology of many mainline Protestant denominations, conservative evangelicals in the 20th century sought to create a parallel culture and thereby to disengage from the larger one around them. The concept of university is a Christian one, and most universities worldwide were originally founded by Christians seeking to unify all of the diverse aspects of human endeavor under the Lordship of Christ, and to interact with and challenge even the non- and anti-Christian ideas surfacing in the culture. But now, for the first time, Christian universities and schools were designed to limit the range of cultural ideas that could be taught or discussed. As a result, much of the church in America abdicated its traditional role at the forefront of positive intellectual influence on the culture at large. At the same time, in what came to be known as the Great Reversal, some of those same conservative evangelicals also uncoupled the work of Christ's kingdom from the verbal proclamation of the forgiveness of sins and need for salvation. Evangelicalism came to be identified with the preaching of John 3.16, but without an accompanying concern for social justice for the poor, the immigrant, and the prisoner. And we can see this great reversal still being played out today. Fortunately, the Spirit of God is moving to create in His church a more biblically and historically accurate understanding of all that the Lord desires of His followers. Having been raised in such a church, I was encouraged to memorize Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, and taught that our works didn't matter to God. We were not asked to memorize the next verse, part of the same thought and argument, which says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Verse 10 is just as inspired and authoritative as are the two verses that precede it. And this section of Paul's letter to the Ephesians is not saying that we are saved by our good works, but rather that once we are saved, we then, in gratitude and obedience, join Jesus in his good work by doing what he gives us to do. And if someone were to ask, what are these good works that God has prepared beforehand? One good shorthand answer would be, And you can feel free to say this along with me. To love our neighbors as ourselves, to seek the peace and prosperity of our city, to bear witness to the coming kingdom of God, and to joyfully serve all of creation. In this way, the next four lines of our call to mission are designed to encapsulate some of the mission to which Christ calls us his followers. And the first is to love our neighbors as ourselves. This command comes originally from Leviticus 19, 18, and Jesus quotes it several times in the Gospel accounts of his ministry, and in Matthew 22:39, 39 refers to it as the second great commandment. Notice that it also appears twice in our regular morning liturgy here at Antioch. We find it not only here in our sending prayer, but we also prayed it in our prayer of confession where we acknowledge that we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. In Luke 10, a lawyer hopes to justify himself by trying to induce Jesus to define neighbor and thereby the scope of this command in a narrow way. Our Lord's response was the parable of the Good Samaritan, the point of which is that everyone, even the people you consider your enemies, qualifies as your neighbor and thereby falls within the scope of this second great commandment. Some of you may actually have enemies in workplaces or neighborhoods, And as Americans, we certainly have enemies overseas from other nations, but most of these are impersonal and don't cross our paths from day to day. May I suggest then that for most of us, the people who most practically serve the role of enemies are those fellow Americans and even fellow Christians who have political views and theological views that differ from ours. And we have allowed ideologies to separate us from those we are clearly called by Christ to love and in this we might have much of which to both lament and repent. But before leaving this phrase, let me mention that this command to love also involved those who are our neighbors in the conventional sense, those who live on the same street as we do. Ryan and Caitlin Luttrell and their family took advantage of Halloween to open their yard to the people of their neighborhood. Rather than just toss candy into the bags of visitors, They set up chairs around an outdoor heater and offered a warm and hospitable place for resting, sipping cider, and getting to know one another better. Ryan tells me that they met more of their neighbors on Halloween night than they had in the whole prior year of living in their new neighborhood. The second great command entails, for the sake of Christ's call upon us, our being the very best neighbors possible, the most hospitable, the most helpful, the friendliest, those most likely to extend grace and peace when controversies or disagreements arise. The next part of our call to mission is to seek the peace and prosperity of our city. This phrase comes from Jeremiah 29. and was part of a word through that prophet to the people of Judah who were in exile in Babylon. In the surrounding verses, the Lord assures them that he hasn't abandoned them and that their grandchildren would eventually return home to Jerusalem. But the message to the exiled people themselves was, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the peace and prosperity of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare You will find your welfare. Again, I've heard entire sermons on this passage, but the most memorable was one delivered by Jonathan Brooks when he came to Antioch a few years ago. Jonathan grew up on the south side, and you don't need to have been there because Jim Carrocci told us all in song that the south side of Chicago is the baddest part of town. Uh, But Jonathan was a survivor and one of the fortunate ones to get away from those hard neighborhoods to go to college and eventually seminary, and to make a better life for himself and his family. When the Lord called him back to pastor a church in that rough area, he agreed on the assumption that he could live in the suburbs and commute to the church. But it became clear to him that God was calling him to become part of that community and make it his own. And so this particular passage from Jeremiah served both as a directive from the Lord to Jonathan and as a guidebook for how to uh, take up that charge. Jonathan shared that the passage about planting gardens, gardens had relevance to his adoptive community because fresh produce is hard to come by in the disadvantaged neighborhoods of our major cities. Such places are not strategical priorities for market of choice, whole foods and such. And so Jonathan and his pastoral staff had to work to convince fresh produce providers to take a chance on his community. When he read the part about giving his daughters in marriage to local guys, it made Jonathan realize that his church needed to invest in a major way in the raising and education of the hoodlums he saw hanging out on the neighborhood streets. And though this passage was written to a particular people in a specific context that we don't share, it has parallels to our situation and things to teach us. We aren't awaiting our own return to the promised land. We're waiting for the rightful king to return here, at which time he will finally and forever put all things to right. But in the meantime, we are to be living in the time and places in which the Lord has placed us, and we are to be a blessing to all those people, animals, plants, buildings, organizations, governments, and all that make up those communities. Here would be a good opportunity to reiterate a point that is easier for me to preach than it is for our pastors, And that is that all of this work that we're talking about is not the work of the pastors and the staff of the church. Rather, as Ephesians 4.12 tells us, the job of the pastors is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. At Antioch, much of our outward focus falls within the areas overseen by Amy, our pastor of hospitality and justice, but it is not her job to do any of this work herself. Rather, it is for us, the people of Antioch, to do all of this work of loving our neighbors, blessing the communities in which we live and work, and demonstrating to the watching world what it means to be truly human by living in right relationships. Believe it or not, we're about to have a pop-up ad in the middle of our sermon. So having, having mentioned the pastors, allow me as an elder to tell you that this is the time of year that the elders ask you to contribute to an annual staff love offering, which will be given to the pastors and staff as a sort of Christmas bonus. So if you can give in addition to your normal tithes and offerings toward a show of gratitude toward our fantastic Antioch staff, please do so in the next few weeks. And you can do that the same way you usually give, just be sure to designate it staff love offering. Thank you. The next line of our call to mission is to bear witness to the coming kingdom of God. Jesus' message was the kingdom of God come to earth, and the message had two parts. He declared that his presence on earth at that time represented the inbreaking of that kingdom, that people could even then and now begin to experience what it means to live in right relationship with God, with self, with others, and with the rest of creation but he also made clear that he will return again to establish that kingdom on earth for all time. In the meantime, he left us, his followers, to carry on with his ministry and to be his ambassadors. This is declared in yet another biblical call to mission, this one found in Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth and read to us earlier by Kate. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation, We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For his own good reasons, Jesus wants us to partner with him in the ministry of reconciliation and to show the world what it means to live in the kingdom of God. I was quite interested as I did research for this sermon to find more than one theologian who used these two phrases interchangeably, the kingdom of God and the reconciliation of all things, as though the two are synonymous. Now when we think of an ambassador, we tend to have a very different idea than the one Paul had in mind in New Testament times. In our day, a United States ambassador to a foreign country likely lives in a palatial setting close to the embassy and spends his or her time trying to influence the policies of that country for the benefit of our country and assisting American citizens living or traveling there. At the end of his or her term, the ambassador will return home to the United States to a fat pension and retirement in comfort in the homeland. But in Paul's time, ambassadors of Rome would have had no expectations of ever returning to Rome. Instead, they were sent to live out the rest of their lives in cities and regions that Rome had conquered, and to exemplify to the people of those areas Roman law, Roman philosophy, and Roman religion. They were to help in the transformation of Corinth, in this case, from a Greek city to a Roman one. They were to live not in the way the ancient Corinthians were used to, but according to the beliefs and practices of of the Romans. Rightly understood then, this call to Christ followers to be ambassadors of God's kingdom means that we are to live in God's ways in a culture that does not know or understand those ways. When Scripture tells us in Philippians 3.20 that our citizenship is in heaven, it does not mean that we look forward to going there. Rather, it means we are to follow heaven's and God's ways in and for the benefit of the places on earth in which He has placed, redeemed, and called us to be His ambassadors. Moreover, all of us have our own mission fields regardless of our vocations. In church history it has been popular to glorify certain callings, including those of pastors, priests, and other clerics, and to diminish the importance of those engaged in other, less spiritual work. This stems from a false Gnostic dualism that was repudiated by the Protestant reformers, who rightly understood that whatever work it is to which the Lord has called us is of eternal value. Our youngest daughter, Willow, taught ballet and jazz for years at the modest little dance studio in Madras. None of the girls she taught is likely to go on to have a career as a dancer, but every single one of them experienced the love of Christ through having found themselves in Willow's presence for that part of their lives. And so here's another pop-up ad. You can see Willow dancing along with along with fellow Antiochers, uh, Katie James and Isaac Witham, at the Central Oregon School of Ballet's annual performance of The Nutcracker, uh, a Central Oregon Christmas season tradition, and that'll be right across the street at the Bend High School Auditorium on the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th of December. And before we move on to the next line of our call to mission, let me share a quote from uh, philosophy professor James Smith. The church is called to be the church to and for the world, not in order to save it or conquer it or even transform it, but to serve it by showing what redeemed human community and culture look like as modeled by the one whose cultural work led him to the cross. Now, I really like this quote, and I would love to unpack the important truths that it contains, but instead I'm gonna take issue with the one phrase with which I disagree because I believe that we are indeed called to transform the world. God's purpose, after all, is the reconciliation of all things, and he has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To be sure, there is a not-yet aspect to that reconciliation, and the task won't be finished until he returns to complete it. But that truth in no way diminishes the task he has given us or the expectation of our performing it. I think most of us are rightly daunted and overwhelmed by the idea that we and the church could actually succeed in transforming our world. But rather than focus on the problems and politics of our own peculiar time, we need to look at history to see the great transforming work of which the church, inspired by God's Holy Spirit, has already been capable. And let me go all the way back to the point of the crucifixion. What we find there is a ragtag band of uneducated Jewish fisher boys and young women, followers of a one-time stonemason, now dead while a homeless man, all of them members of a minor nation, conquered and occupied by the mightiest empire that has, the world has ever known. But the Roman Empire is long gone, and it is that ragtag band and its descendants who have spread throughout the world with the message of the new kingdom. And everywhere they'd gone, these Christians, as they came to be called, promoted literacy, established schools and universities, built and staffed hospitals, orphanages, and leper asylum, and cared for people, body and soul. Eventually, it was Christians who founded modern science and democracies. And most of the good about culture and civilization that we take for granted today traces not to Roman or Greek culture, or any other pagan, atheist, or even secular humanist belief systems, but to Christ and his church. There have been hiccups along the way, and times when that which was not of God's kingdom was done in the name of Christ. Nonetheless, the church truly has transformed the world, and not through wars or politics, but through loving their neighbors as themselves, seeking the peace and prosperity of the places to which their Lord sent them, and bearing witness to the coming kingdom of god the next line of our call to mission is and to joyfully serve all of creation if you've been listening at antioch for any t- time at all or even just this morning you will know that our slogan our brief summary of the scope of god's purposes in the world is the reconciliation of all things this phrase is taken from colossians 1 which makes it very clear that God's redemptive work has in view all of his creation. Coupled with the 2 Corinthians 5 passage that we just looked at, we understand that we are to be faithful servants of that creation. What I want to explain very briefly at this point is that our service to creation has been absolutely central to God's plans all along. In the creation narrative of Genesis 1, at the point at which God creates humanity, it is made clear that this one species, uniquely made in God's own image, was intended to rule over creation with him. The dominion mandate in which God places human beings in the role of leadership over creation is found in the very same passage, Genesis 1, 27, 28, in which we are told that we, re- we are created with the amago Dei. That is, whatever else the image of God in us means, A significant part of its purpose is that we would treat the rest of creation in the same way as God himself does, lovingly, sacrificially, ensuring its flourishing. In theological circles, this is known as the vocational understanding of the Imago Dei in humanity. Then in Genesis 2.15, we read that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate and keep it. The Hebrew words translated here, cultivate and keep, and in other versions, work and take care of, are elsewhere in the Old Testament translated serve and protect, as in reference to the priest with regard to the Holy of Holies. The inference is that Adam's role in the garden and our role in creation likewise involves serving and protecting it, because all of God's very good creation is likewise sacred space. In the book of Revelation, the story of creation and redemption comes full circle. Christ will return to establish his rule over creation, and he will voluntarily share that rule with his redeemed people. We learn this from Revelation 22.5 in the last chapter of our Bibles, and from Revelation 5.10, both of which say that the redeemed people of Christ are destined to reign with him in the new kingdom. This theme is also found in various other New Testament passages as well as in the Old Testament book of Daniel. But Romans 8 describes the current situation between the onset of Christ's kingdom at His first coming and its fulfillment at His return. For the creation waits in eager anticipation for the children of God to be revealed in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. This says that our destiny and that of creations are the same, redemption, reconciliation, restoration. And at present, the creation itself is waiting for Christ followers to step up and to fulfill our role of faithful servants to and protectors of creation. Our call to mission ends with, in the love of the Father, the name of the Son, and the power of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our sending prayer is Trinitarian, acknowledging the one true God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Of course, this phrase can be found throughout the New Testament, but it's also included in the Great Commission at which we've already looked. It's also found in the historical creeds that have been shared by believers throughout the history of the church. There's still a great mystery in the Trinity, and when trying to distinguish among the three persons of the Godhead, it is easy to run oneself into heresy. The best way to avoid this when making a positive claim about one person of the Trinity is to neither state nor imply the opposite about the others. And so we can affirm that it is the Father's love that motivates us, as John 3.16 tells us. Further, we are on mission through the authority of Jesus. He begins the Great Commission with, All authority has been given to me, go therefore. Likewise, in John 20:21, 20, Jesus says, As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And then it is the Holy Spirit that guides and empowers us, and this takes all of the pressure off of us. We do not, indeed we cannot, accomplish any of this in our own wisdom, strength, and power. If the task seems overwhelming, be sure that it is the very same power that raised Jesus from the dead that will work in and through us to accomplish that to which the Father and Son have called us. Christopher Wright puts things into proper perspective for us when he writes that it is not the case that God has a mission for His Church. Rather, God created His Church for His eternal mission in the world. Jesus is surely reconciling all things to the Father and bringing about the completion of his kingdom on earth. And he has invited us to join him in that great work. Antioch Church, may we be a people who are willingly sent by God into the greatest mission imaginable, boldly empowered by the very same Spirit that raised our Lord from the dead. Amen.